All right. I think we're all set. We need to come up with some kind of a cool opening cut. You're probably going to do it because you're cool. Uh, for now, we don't have any. So, and that's because it's the first episode ever of of our uh, De- um, DevOps Speakeasy podcast. So, yeah. Yay! 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 Yeah. Um, and, and for... For the first episode ever, we have an amazing guest, uh, Anton Weiss, um, an international uh, DevOps rock star, a speaker in many conferences, including our very own uh, Yala DevOps. Um, we're going to get, obviously, to Anton very soon, a couple of words about DevOps Pekizi and, and, and the podcast format. So <clears throat> DevOps Pekizi was um, born... Um, I think half a year ago as a set of interviews that we do with uh, speakers and, and celebs in the DevOps world, uh, usually at the conferences. Uh, we recorded it live, just grab people on the show floor or in a, in a conference and just interviewed them very short, eight to 10 minutes about one topic. Um, since no one is going to conferences anymore, uh, we and we still want to speak with awesome people, we um, decided to retrofit this format into a podcast because, as you know, everybody are podcasting, no one is pod listening, so that including us. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, that's a podcast. It means um, not face-to-face, but in our virtual studios, uh, it means a longer format. We aim for an hour episode, so we have plenty of time to discuss all kinds of things and going rumbling into all kinds of uh, topics. Uh, and uh, we'll see how it goes. We'll probably have our share of five followers, um, Anton's mom um, and a and, and couple of more. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll see. I hope it will be interesting for you. It's for sure going to be interesting for us. And um, when I say us, um, we will try to aim to a couple of hosts to make it more interesting. Uh, today we have an amazing Kat uh, Cosgrove, developer advocate, is Jeffra with us. Um, and uh, myself, um, I'm Baruch Sadogurski, head of uh, DevOps Advocacy at Jeffrog. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, Anton Weiss. So let's get to let's get to it, and uh, let's. Who who are you, Anton? Wow, that's a philosophical question. A very deep. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so who am I? I'm a human being, evidently. For the last. Uh, 30 years I've been living in Israel. Uh, Before that, I was born and uh, brought up in Russia. For the last 20 years, and that's what's relevant for the topic of this podcast, I've been dealing with information technology. Started out as a developer, uh, writing code in C and C++, then moved on to number of different integration, whatever they were called positions. Uh, with time, the things that I were doing, I was doing uh, started being called uh, configuration management. And then uh, at a certain point, Patrick Debois invented a new wonderful word, DevOps. Since then, that's what I'm all about. Uh, for the last four years, I've been doing this for myself, 
I'm actually doing it for my customers, for my clients. So uh, I'm a head and a founder of a consulting boutique consulting company called Automato Software, where what we do is we help our clients, large enterprise companies and small startups to make DevOps easier. So DevOps that's, that's... easy, make DevOps easy. Exactly, and, and speak easy about it. Um, DevOps consulting, I, I try to get my head around it. What, how does it look like? I mean, what's, what, what is it about? So, so how does it work? You come to a company and then you do what? You, you bring DevOps engineers with you? How, how uh, Baruch, you, you, ooh, 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 ooh. no, I'm going to pick on you for that. You told me once that DevOps engineer is not a real thing. That's, that's exactly why I asked this question because I think Anton here with me on this topic and he's going to is going to tell what, everything. He that, that's like the, the first thing I do. I come to them and I say, "You you shouldn't have any DevOps engineers." Uh, there you go. And then uh, I take uh, a couple thousand bucks. And I'm out of the door. So basically, ah, <laughs> that's okay. Are you hiring? <laughs> 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 well, uh, it, it, this is hard to sell. Don't be mistaken. <laughs> uh, well, but actually, what we do, we, we, I never call this DevOps consulting, even though, you know, uh, the word DevOps is all around me, and uh, I pronounce it many times a day, but still, what I do, what, what I like to say is I do is software delivery optimization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I like there that. Are organizations they create software. They want to make this software usable by their users, so they need to deliver software, and they have some hardships on the way. And that's where, as I see, our expertise is to understand where the the roadblocks are, where the bottlenecks are, to analyze the whole process and help uh, find the ways. Mm-hmm to make this thing easier, faster, more fun. Uh, This includes, of course, all of the components, the processes, the tools, the the people, of course, and uh, well, the information as I said, we always talk about people, processes, tools. We don't talk enough about the flow of information around this thing because it's it's also not less important, sometimes even more important, because information is what flows through the pipeline. And well, uh, well, but that that's like super broad. I mean, software delivery optimization is is everything. It's like I don't know, starting with picking up the right programming language and having good developers and and using the right design patterns and stuff that we never associate or almost never associate with DevOps. That's, I think, saying like, I'm, I'm here to optimize your software delivery, saying I'm here to make your life better. Your, your coffee brand is wrong. It's like, it's everything. Yes. Ooh. I never said it was easy. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, that's... Uh, making how making how people better. better. People want tangible goals because they want tangible des- results and they want to hold you accountable. 
So how do you even go about it? Well, um, if, if I hope I don't tread on your trade secrets. <laughs> well, in general, consulting is a, is a tricky business, right? So yeah, uh, you assume your uh, customers want tangible results. They don't always do, right? Because uh, they have their consulting budgets and uh, they are accountable for those budgets. And if you don't deliver the results, then they're accountable to their managers, right? So mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, uh, yeah, they do expect results, but they don't really want to measure it because if for some reason you don't have the results and well, the results, the consultant gets are not always dependent on the consultant him or herself right because this is like a consultant can only recommend things a consultant can coach a consultant can mentor but in the end uh, the implementation of the consultant's recommendations is on the part of the client and uh, well the client doesn't okay, that, that would never fly with with our boss that I can tell you right now. You need to find very specific people that don't care about the results or holding you accountable. Uh, well, what I'm trying to say is that many people say they want to see tangible results, but when, you know, the topic of my talk at Yellow DevOps and many other talks that... Uh, I delivered in the last couple of years were about how do we measure the results of DevOps? How do we measure the, the return on investment from DevOps, right? And the thing I see time after time that there are very few organizations really investing effort in, in this, right? So when we do DevOps, we actually want to achieve two things, right? We want to deliver software faster and with better quality because it would go faster, but things are always broken that we haven't done anything. And if we're uh, achieving good quality, but we can't keep up with the market demand, then again, we, we haven't, the, the DevOps isn't working, right? So uh, we need to be measuring across both speed and quality or whatever, uh, whatever they're called, right? Uh, velocity and quality. Velocity. Yep. St stability and uh, what? How do how do they call it in in the uh, in the accelerate book? It, they're not 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 using uh, velocity, right? What are they using? The lead time. Ah, lead time, right? Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. talking about lead time. Deployment so, frequency. Failure rate, mean time to recovery. Right. Okay. So there are four very simple measures. How many organizations out there are actually measuring this? Well, those to which Nicole comes and asks those questions, then I think they start caring about it. Probably. Probably. My guess, again, like uh, what, what, what is the DevOps, the, the DORA survey uh, based upon? It's based upon uh, surveys, right? It's so self-reporting. Yeah, questions. Yeah. The questions, are they based on data? My guess would be that most people 
providing answers to the server are saying, well, it's more or less this. Okay. Yeah. Well, they don't have a data because collecting this data is an investment. And we don't see organizations really, really investing into this because, well, because we're very, very busy fixing the deployments or we're very busy uh, replacing our current uh, infrastructure with Kubernetes or we're very busy hiring DevOps engineers because they're so hard to find. <laughs> because they don't exist. It's very hard to find something that doesn't exist. I don't know, we got a, we got a whole TV show about finding something that doesn't exist. There's like a seven season long show about finding a Bigfoot. I haven't found him yet, seven seasons though. Yeah, so. the, truth, the truth is out there, that's another very long running TV show about finding stuff that might exist. Uh, okay, so you know what, I'm, I'm I'm worried now mm -hmm. because what you are saying is that everything is like, is, is smoke and mirrors. There is no actual measurements. There are no actual results. You come to people and excuse me, bullshitting them and they buy your bullshit and then no one measures anything. And I mean, I'm happy for you. You get your money. Everybody are happy, but Seriously, I personally thought that's a serious engineering discipline, that we are serious people that come with data, with numbers, argument with data, measure stuff, have tangible results. What I hear is that none of that is true. You got me worried. Now you need to calm me down. <laughs> Baruch, Baruch, chill. <laughs> chill, chill, bro. <laughs> it's a speakeasy. Do you have anything in your coffee? Um, yeah, I'm. It's it's a little bit too early. I <laughs> think for the afternoon episodes, I will come more prepared as a speakeasy. No, but I, I don't seriously. I mean, uh, let's talk about it. What you are saying is no one is measuring anything, and no one knows what they are doing. And the improvement is 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 basically the feeling that we have better about them ourselves. Now, that was actually the first part of the show when I get everybody pissed off with me. So, okay, here you go. So you did that. Okay, now let's get to the second part. <laughs> now, I'm not saying nobody measuring anything, right? I'm saying what I see is that, well, again, I'm biased, right? Because when I get called in, I'm usually called in when organizations are in pain, right? Because... Uh, if you're not in pain, you usually don't call a consultant. You're mm -hmm. until you know the the virus breaks out. You're saying, okay, we can handle this ourselves. That's a very timely reference. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I used to work in the like data backup industry, and that's that's something we saw consistently there too. That nobody cared about having backups, like businesses. They didn't care until they got hit with a crypto locker virus and they're like just utterly screwed. And that there's some, there's some overlap there with uh, DevOps now that we've got DevSecOps as a thing, worrying okay. about security from the very beginning. Okay, I hear you. So people come to you when they think they are in pain. And you tell them, you sell them these smoke and mirrors that, you know, you will be fine. Let's just do... Let's just do no, what? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. 
What I'm selling is actually, I'm saying, I'm providing measurable results. Here is what you need to have in place in order to measure this. And here is what we're going to do, right? We, we have an uh, assessment process that we've been doing for the last three, four years with different organizations. So we sit down with all the players of this delivery game, right? The, the developers, the, the operations, uh, the testers, the project managers, uh, product managers, whoever is, is in this game, whoever is providing requirements, whoever is implementing requirements, whoever is building the infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, well, even from the very basic, you know, value strip map mapping, value stream mapping, you can realize there are certain bottlenecks. There are the, the low hanging fruit, right? That everybody knows is there. And many times when I come to organizations, they already know where the pain is, even though sometimes when we sit down and talk to everybody, we find out that that's not the real pain. Like, you know, they say our build takes three hours, but then you sit down with them and you realize it takes them a week to approve a version. So you say maybe the three hours build is not your uh, biggest bottleneck, right? But then again, okay. So after the assessment, we more or less know what we're going to do. And let me let me stop you before we're going to the after part. So you you say you promise tangible results. Mm -hmm. How how are they measured? I'm sorry, I'm going back to that because that's one thing that I really want to understand, especially since you position your results as improvement in software delivery, which, mm -hmm. as I mentioned, sound very, very, um, very, very wide, uh, wide range topics. So, so you say, here are the results that you are going to see. What, what are they? How they are measured? Okay, so the, the metrics, as we said, there are the four basic metrics that oh, okay. uh, can be found in, in, uh, in the Accelerate book. Delivery time, uh, uh, sorry, lead time, uh, deployment frequency, uh, stability. And yeah, failure, failure rate and mean time to recovery, yep. Right, yeah. Uh, the five metrics actually, yeah. In the, in the last uh, issue of the survey, they added stability. Which is, which is an actual operational metric, which wasn't there before. Because if you look at four other metrics, they're not actually about operations. Yeah, they are about DevOps. That, that's the right. thing. They're, <laughs> they're up to the point of delivery, but they're yes. not about you know, maintaining software afterwards. Right. So they've added stability uh, into, the, into the mix, and that's a good thing. So these are the things that you can actually measure, right? Uh, we, so have our, we have our own. We have your, on, on each and every of those metrics, you will be better after you implement the steps that we are going to recommend. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's, that's more or less the, the promise. I cannot promise how much better the organization will become because it's a process of uh, continuous improvement, right? But uh, the first thing I'm saying is we need to start measuring this, right? Because most organizations that I arrive at don't measure this. Mm -hmm. Because they're saying it's very hard to measure, you know, 
how do we know where uh, when our lead time ends, right? Because uh, we have commits at the beginning of the release. We're still not doing continuous delivery because much to our surprise, probably because we hear are so much in the continuous delivery mindset, but most organizations out there are not doing continuous delivery. <laughs> so they're saying, we're not doing continuous delivery yet. So how do we count the lead time? Is this from the time the commit has been pushed until the time the release is out there or until the time we roll this out to the staging environment or until the time, you know, whatever, a bug has been found. Uh, so uh, we need to define these things. And it's quite okay if each organization defines this differently because the important thing is you start measuring, you start, you define the start point and the end point, and then you can say, okay, this is the whole thing. And if the whole thing is not getting faster, probably I'm not optimizing in the, at, at the right point. And then you start searching for the actual bottlenecks because as the theory of constraints teaches us, optimizing anywhere but not at the bottleneck is not optimizing anything at all, right? So uh, that would be the correct approach. So much to- uh, Yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll come back to that. Uh, go ahead. But, but of course, it's, it's, it's a, it, this, is, this is how it works in a perfect world. This, allow, th this requires a lot of discipline, this requires, you know, not panicking, and uh, this requires uh, of you not to be in too much pain, first of all, because as I said, most of companies that I start to work with are already in pain. So first of all, they need a cure for the pain. So they would say, our production is crashing all the time, right? We, we have uh, critical alerts uh, five times a week, so then we say, I don't care how, how long your lead time is. <laughs> the first thing you need to do is take an aspirin. So let's just sort out your alerts. Let's uh, put all of the focus on your production alerts. Let's uh, wake up everybody when an alert uh, occurs and let's make sure that we're reducing these alerts. At one company that we worked with, we created something that we called a pain board, right? They had a very unstable environment and things were always crashing and the things were crashing because of the same issues that never were fixed because they didn't have the focus in order to fix this. So we started, you know, putting them on a board on a, on a large screen, a large monitor for everyone to see. And uh, we started having these daily uh, meetings where we would look at the board and say, this issue has been coming back for 50th times around. So we need to take care of this first of all, because we don't want it coming back anymore. And uh, when you work in this way, uh, slowly but surely you start reducing the amount of issues, you start reducing the noise, you start reducing the pain, and then you can start focusing on the actual delivery problems. Okay, so the first the first stage is kind of firefighting mode when you just, you know, you, you, you fix the obvious problems which are obvious for everybody, no need to do any sophisticated analysis and, what, and what's not. Every deployment that we do fails, let's fix that. Well, that's like, that's the obvious thing. 
and that makes sense. Um, but ah, I forget what I wanted to ask. Here we go. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, regarding the bottlenecks, I wonder if you can name one the biggest bottleneck that you see in the majority of your customers or or the organizations you speak with, or maybe not one, maybe a couple. But you know the biggest the biggest pains that you see. Well. That's pretty easy, you know. That was the stock that I was supposed to deliver at uh, the hoops. Oh, you will, you will. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Same goes to you, Kat. You're all fine. But actually, really? yeah. excellent. I was really excited for that. Yeah. The subject of the, subject of, of the talk was uh, DevOps hero's journey, right? So I, I was taking the the hero's journey, the the. 12 steps or whatever, how many steps, the, the, the amount of steps changes. But there was this guy uh, called, uh, what was his name? Uh, the last name was Campbell. Yep. He just uh, escaped me. So what he said, he was studying uh, a lot of those. Uh, his name, Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Yeah, Joseph Campbell, right. Okay, yep. so he, what, what he did, he was studying the, the myths of different countries and different people things like uh, story of the myth of Buddha, the myth of uh, Jesus, uh, the myth of uh, 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 Muhammad, whatever. Okay, and he was saying all of these stories, all of these myths, they follow the same pattern. And uh, actually... Yeah, the, term, the, the term for that is mono, monomyth. Yeah, right. Yeah, the term is monomyth. So he was saying they're all the same myth, but, uh, you know, some of them have a bit more steps, some of them have some steps missing, but uh, the, the overall pattern is the same. So you could actually break them all down into the same pattern and then uh, the same thing happens with, with you know, implementing DevOps practice. Just before we jump into implementing credit when credit is due, so Joseph Campbell, the book that we are all learn from called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, um, it's 70 years old, but still super relevant. And this is where the theory of the monomyth is um, is laid uh, laid down. We will obviously have the link to the book in the show notes. Uh, so, yeah. So what you are saying is the DevOps hero journey is fitting into this monomyth theory. And it's the same journey like the journey of Jesus, for that matter. Yeah, sure. So it's it's a journey to a better life. <laughs> through okay. the, uh, hardships and the challenges uh, that you see on the way, right? But uh, when, when I started to think about what the journey was, I realized that uh, there is always this, this uh, stage where you realize that uh, no matter how many things you automate, no matter uh, how many tools you replace, okay, at a certain point you start realizing, coming back to the to the basics, right? The, we start realizing that our big, biggest bottleneck is human collaboration, human communication, and uh, well, th that's what where DevOps what DevOps started from. If you take the the original uh, uh, talk by John Olspo and Paul Hammond. Right, that actually caused Patrick 
Dubois to invent DevOps, what, what they were talking about is how did we manage to deploy 10 times a day at Flickr? Because our devs started thinking a bit more like ops and our ops started thinking a bit more like devs. So it was all about a change of thinking. It was all about a change of mindset. Nobody was talking about Kubernetes. Uh, excuse my French at that time. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, this is all... Like is there. Yeah, that's, yeah, this is all nice and And you completely ditched my, my question because saying that the problem of everybody is collaboration is that like saying, well, the, the problem is everybody are humans. Uh, that's uh, while this is true. <laughs> it's maybe kind of, maybe the virus will help fixing the problem. Yeah, yeah, but not with collaboration. Obviously, it does the opposite. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, while this is true, this is so broad that it it's it's not really actionable. Um, let me ask you again. Uh, to the actionable, maybe maybe even technology related, what are the bigger bottlenecks that you see? You, for example, you mentioned that the majority of the companies, to all, all astonishing, don't do continuous delivery. Is that one of them, or are there are others, or maybe that's not the biggest problem at all? Uh, technology related. Well. Uh... The biggest, uh, the biggest problem technology-related is, of course, uh, managing complexity. Managing it's very easy. It's very life cycle. Hmm? Complexity. Managing life cycle. You said. No, I said complexity. Oh, complexity. Sorry. Yep. Okay. In you know, in the conferences, uh, in in the last couple of years, uh, whatever we talk about, we in the end, we, we mentioned this, right? Complexity. And uh, actually, what we now uh, see in the world with the, with the virus, with the glo globality of the virus outbreak that we, we can now see, it's also related to that, you know, because the scale that we work at today in large organizations especially, uh, causes so much complexity that it's really very, very hard to manage this conceptually and technologically. So it's very easy to build a pipeline for uh, one monolith service while it's still small and it has a small amount of dependencies. And when we have one, two, maybe three teams, that's easy. Okay, the moment we need to manage a couple dozen microservices with a couple dozen teams, that becomes hard because even with the tooling that we're building today, we're not resolving the, the conceptual uh, understanding of this, right? So the tooling is there, like take, take Kubernetes, for example. Kubernetes is a great tool, but in order to manage this complexity, the tool itself has to be complex. And then we as humans find ourselves limited in, in our ability to manage it. And uh, really hard. The learning curve is steep there. Exactly. 
So uh, this is a technological challenge as well as it is a management challenge, right? Because uh, the engineers are uh, dealing with complicated large-scale technology that is very complex, that complex uh, for them to grasp. Nobody has the whole picture. Like, uh, you know, we've been uh, building a, one of the latest projects we're building uh, continuous delivery pipelines for uh, uh, data science. So there are those uh, ETL workflows that are running on Airflow and then we need to understand how to continuously deliver these airflow uh, DAGs, they're called, directed acyclic drafts to the production environment. Do we use airflow itself? Do we use Jenkins? How these tools interact? And none of the continuous delivery engineers understand the complexity that's involved with the uh, ETL processes. None of the ETL engineers understand how continuous delivery is done. So how do we make these things work together? No answers, very hard. Now take a manager that tries to make these two teams work together. What, what does that manager tell them? <laughs> how, how does that manager allow them to work together? That's complex. So um, it's still a people problem, not strictly a technology problem. And yes, well, the technology is still still undeveloped, right? We're sure. scaling things much faster than the, the tooling is developing. Yeah. As an example, I was thinking about this. You know, there are some pieces of technology that really, really uh, astonish me. For example, take the, the, the automatic uh, suggestions from Google. When you uh, type uh, messages today, or not, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's, it's Google back there, whatever is doing that back there, you know, in messages on Slack or uh, Telegram or WhatsApp, there are automated suggestions and it's get, you can actually see how it's getting smarter every day. So whereas, yeah. you know, two years ago, it was really, really stupid. Like, it was. Suggest and now there's like Twitter or social media memes that go around where you like start a sentence with something predefined, like I'm quitting tech because, and then you let the autocomplete finish it for you. And it's getting like, it's turning out some stuff. It's like actual sentences that. Yeah, uh, it's not, not funny anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's not funny. Like I got, uh, one of my friends got, I'm quitting tech to become an artist. And geez, like I know people who have actually done that. That's a real thing. It's pretty, yeah, pretty and, and it's pretty getting, getting harder and harder to, uh, distinguish between those emails answers that was just you know click to uh, click to answer pre-canned answer or actually people saying something yeah it's exactly. getting harder so, so what we really need you know is our uh, delivery deployment technology to be like that so uh, I've built a deploy and it's not going to be deployed okay so the system should be suggesting this to me saying this, when you roll it out to production, is going to be borked. So maybe what you really meant was saying, I want this to be, I don't know, highly available. You're saying you want block storage, but actually you were probably 
meaning to use uh, S3, <laughs> whatever. We want tooltips. We want tooltips. I don't want it to like, I don't want my deployments to like do everything for me because uh, that level of um, leaving certain security concerns or networking concerns up to uh, an automated wizard makes me a little bit uncomfortable. That's uh, pretty consistently exploitable eventually. But tooltips would be nice. Like, hey, are you sure that you really want to do it that way? Because this might be kind of less than ideal. I think some, some tooling is doing that now, right? Don't we have like config uh, suggestions in the platform? I think a lot of, a lot of, of, of chat ops is, is kind of doing that. So one of the, one of the examples is, um, oh, I forgot the name. The, the startup that Automist, Automist, that they're doing that a lot. So they're giving you like hints of what might be wrong and then a very simple way to actually fix it with, with, with one pre-canned answer or, or just some text that you, that you sent. Um, for your yeah, the industry has been moving in that direction. There's also a startup here in, in Tel Aviv uh, that I've recently been talking to we're thinking in that direction, the, the incident response, like, you know, they're saying we can, we can realize, we, we can find certain patterns in how we fix certain problems or how we debug certain problems, right? So we could, you know, build something smart that whenever an issue happens, like, I don't know, my MySQL database is uh, hanging because it has... Uh, 100% CPU overload, then maybe these are the steps that I would usually take, you know, like SSH to the server or check what the last query was uh, executed, things like that. So what we need is an AI overlord. Oh, That's uh, where we're moving towards. It's not even artificial intelligence. It's more like, you know, Machine learning, probably. So, like, not not a system that thinks for itself, but the system that at least takes an account whatever we people, we, we humans know. So, Baruch, would the ML that handles a fictional system like this be a DevOps engineer? Oh, that's a good question. But I think it's all about it's all about the collaboration again. It's uh, you know, DevOps engineer. Why why I don't believe that DevOps engineer is 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 a is a real job because devops is about collaboration so having engineer devops engineer doing devops all day it's like having collaboration engineer doing collaboration all day uh, i mean it doesn't it doesn't make sense and this is why we have the empowered team so this is why we have the t-shaped uh, people who actually know a lot about one topic and and a little bit about everything else uh, the machine uh, the machine learned um, artificial intelligence that we are talking about is probably capable of b b being O-shaped engineer and knowing everything about everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, until until we get there, we still need people who specialize in different things, and none of it is DevOps as uh, as a technical as a technical discipline. Um, Anton, I wanted to get back to what you said about complexity because. I'm trying to figure out you as a consultant, you saw it all, you've been through it all. 
how do you advise people to go around complexity? Because I think there are two there are two scenarios. The one is unnecessary complexity. People just got in love with some uh, um, architectures invented in the ivory towers and bring that upon themselves when they don't need it. That's and, a sore and spot then for all me. This, hmm? That's a sore spot for me. I hate it when people do that. And, that and But the good news are that it's fixable. All you can say is, okay, you throw it all away. You start easy. You start small. You start with your manageable small monolith and going from there. Uh, but uh, I mean, it might hurt people. Make it sound so easy, telling people throw everything you build away. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it's definitely not easy. But, but that's the when I, as a consultant, get get thrown out of the door. You know, that's you know how to deal about it and how to smooth things in. But what I mean is there is there is a solution, and solution is walking away from the complexity. I think the more dreadful scenario is when you cannot walk away from the complexity, when complexity is a necessity as a part of your business requirements or the business situation you are in, what are you doing then? Uh, then yeah, I know. I ask tough questions. Yeah. Sure. It's a sure. big question. Then you, you, may, you, you do your best at uh, managing complexity. And, you know, well, they... What does it mean? Well, basically, again, it's it, it's it can sound a bit a little bit uh, vague, uh, but as a systems thinker, I like to call myself systems thinker because it sounds. We so noticed that sounds <laughs> very, very fancy. Yes, <laughs> uh, I've come to realize, or more uh, like I was taught by wonderful folks, uh, for example, uh, Dr. Russell Eckhoff, that uh, the complexity doesn't lie in the components of the system. And if we break down the system into a lot of components and make each component simpler, the system as a whole won't become simpler because the complexity lies in the interaction between components. Sure. So managing complexity basically is managing the interaction between components. And uh, well, I, I think th the first thing you should do is uh, somehow try to outline all of the possible interaction between the components in your system and uh, throw the necessary effort at uh, managing these interactions. Uh, and that's, uh, that's actually what we're trying to do today with the uh, technology that I'm a little bit in love with, uh, and that would be service meshes. All right, so that's, that's a very nice segue. I'm, I'm loving it. And I would, let's, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about technology. That was a lot about methodology and what's not. Let's talk about the the hardcore stuff um so uh, meshes as an answer for for complexity talk to us well uh, basically as i said uh, the best way to manage complexity is by managing the interactions between components not by making components simpler 
right? So we'll uh, let the components be as complex as they need be. And we actually let the interactions be as complex as they need be, but we need to make these interactions understandable, manageable. And uh, for that, we need uh, another buzzword, observability of those interactions, right? And that's one of the things that service meshes uh, allow us having more or less out of the box. And so for people who uh, are watching this who might not be super familiar with the space, can you uh, just go over what a service mesh actually is and what it uh, might, looks like, might look like? Okay, okay. A very short introduction into service meshes without uh, diagrams. And that's actually something that's a little bit hard to grasp without any diagrams. If you have a slide deck, just go ahead and share it on Zoom. It's all, the technology is amazing by now. Yeah. Right. Zoom has a whiteboard function too, I think. So yep, I think it does. actually have a slide here. That's perfect. Our okay. podcast now elevated to the elite of the elite. <laughs> Keep in mind that some people can, you know, just listen to it. So okay. while the slides help, t talk us through them. Wait a second. Where's my Zoom? Share. Here I go. Uh, okay, desktop, and no, not this one. Okay, can I see this? Yep. Hey, yes, yeah. uh, I'm checking the stream and it shows on the stream as well. Perfect. Okay, cool. So um, microservices uh, or any complex distributed system that we might have built uh, cause us uh, a macro pain, right? Because there's a lot of complexity to manage. Our services keep talking to each other and uh, some services that we talk to don't uh, reply in a timely manner. And some services are for some reason not available or other services don't provide responses that we expect them to provide. Sure, it looks like the microservices version of spaghetti code. Yeah, more or less, uh, that's, that's what any complex system uh, grows into with time, right? So uh, now in order to manage all this, uh, all these challenges, a number of techniques were developed over time in order to manage all the challenges of distributed systems. Like in spaghetti code, like, right, you, you have the, the issues of the spaghetti code of the interaction, uh, interaction between the components, but uh, when you start running microservice system, there is another very uh, important component of the system, and that's the network, because in a microservice system, all our components are interacting with each other over the network, right? Sure, yeah. So uh, this network is unreliable. This network can be slow. This network can, for some reason, reject the protocols that we want to talk over this network uh, uh, with. And in order to manage all this uh, complexity and uh, uh, lack of reliability, with time, we've developed a number of patterns, things like uh, connection pools in order to have enough connections uh, whenever we need them all kinds of failure detectors, failover strategies, uh, 
things like circuit breaking, uh, bulk hitting, exponential backoffs, the load balancers, of course, uh, back pressure techniques such as rate limiting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, uh, up until now, we've had a number of components that would allow us to manage this, but many of those concerns were still managed in the code by the developers, right? But these, many of these can be seen as actually operational concerns. So uh, this disconnect between developers implementing operational concerns, but then the operators uh, stumbling upon them, it was causing us a lot of issues. And that's why uh, something like, uh, what was it, four, four years ago in 2016, the folks at a company called Boyant uh, have created a system called Linkerd, which uh, was actually the first ever service mesh uh, that the world knew. Their uh, creation of this component was based on their experience at uh, Twitter. Right? Twitter is famous for uh, the libraries that they've built specifically for dealing with these issues, things like uh, Finagle, right? So they took that experience from Twitter and they built it out in a separate component saying, we don't want each developer to start integrating with this library, right? Because managing libraries is also painful. Very. So let's manage all of this uh, out of process. Let's build a mesh of smart proxies that will be residing next to each one of our services and will be able to manage all of these proxies from a centralized location. And in this way, we can uh, provide a central solution to all of these uh, distributed system reliability issues and concerns. And that's basically what a service mesh is about. Now, the concept uh, has developed and uh, largely thanks to Istio, the leading, the market leader in, in implementing the, the service mesh concept, the service mesh pattern uh, today that was developed by Google in collaboration with uh, Lyft and IBM. And uh, that's basically how it works. Uh, beside Istio, we also have Linkerd. We also have a console connect right now. Now, what all of them basically do is they put smart proxies next to our services and provide us with a control plane, which allows us to manage how these proxies are configured. So we can configure them to, to define all of these reliability techniques, to define which traffic is allowed, to define how the traffic is managed, and that allows us also providing security barriers for the network communication between services. And that also allows us observability because through that control plane, we can also pull data from all of these proxies to understand what our services are chatting about. Okay, okay. Uh, so we basically- And, uh, and I didn't show that diagram, uh, yeah. wait a second. Yeah. So, so we, basically, we basically externalize network communication and this allow us to see what's going on and to control what what should speak with what right okay uh, 
Okay, I'll stop sharing. I, I realize I didn't show you the diagram. I didn't find the right diagram, but I hope the explanation was yeah. fine. No, yeah, no, it actually, yeah, yeah. It, it, you too, you took us through it in words, which is better, especially for people who will for only the listen to podcast instead of seeing it, it. So that's that was great. Yeah, for sure, it's an abstraction layer on top of your distributed system, so that it seems more sane. It's more human readable instead of just being okay. machine readable. Yeah, so, so for the folks who are running Kubernetes and today, basically, you know, in 90% of, uh, of uh, cases, you deploy a service mesh over Kubernetes. So mm -hmm. on Kubernetes, the, the data plane, the proxies are actually sidecars that are injected into each one of your pods. And the control plane are components that run somewhere in the cluster and allow to pull data from these proxies and to configure them. Because it's just too much. It's too much, in my opinion, to expect that like every engineer ever is uh, a Kubernetes expert or an expert in like any other DevOps tool. You should be an expert in your thing, but you can't also be an expert at Kubernetes. So you need something there to make that information still accessible and useful to you, but you don't necessarily need to know how to like dive into the cluster and look at each microservice individually and figure out what's wrong with the network. Right. Yeah. And, and by the way, coming back to, to what we talked about earlier, there are also tools uh, for, uh, for the leading service meshes today that allow you to analyze the configuration of the service mesh and uh, to find possible misconfigurations. Because again, configuring all of this Let's say Sorry. I have a hundred services. They're all communicating with one another. I need to define the security rules for this uh, uh, communication. Who is allowed to talk to whom and uh, what kind of traffic is allowed and uh, whatever, whatever, whatever. Something's misconfigured, very hard to understand. So we need some smarts in the system that would tell us this is where your problem is. Yeah, because like a computer or a system or an application is only as smart as the person who built it or the person who programmed it. But computers and applications and systems like that don't get tired. Uh, they don't get bored and they don't get distracted. And people do. So it's, it's easier for us to make mistakes on repetitive things like security settings for a thousand different microservices. Yeah. Because we get bored or distracted. In general, it's very easy for us to make mistakes. Yep. So, uh, okay. So I'm trying to picture this, you know, flow diagram for for DevOps consultancy, and I think I got I got a grip on it. So a grip on it. So basically, there are two types of complexity: a necessary one and a not necessary one. And for non-necessary, obviously, mm -hmm. you try to convince people to simplify things, to simplify architectures, to maybe migrate from unnecessary microservices, etc. And for necessary ones, you try to suggest them having more control by introducing server meshes as net as as uh, service meshes as as a solution for managing this complexity by taking control over the communication between the different components. That could be service meshes. That could be, you know, just uh, 
having uh, healthy API evolution uh, practices so that uh, whenever we release a new version, we don't break the API for our uh, consumers. And that would be, that could be managed with uh, consumer driven uh, contract testing. Interesting. So, yeah, there, are, there are techniques out there <clears throat> to manage uh, the interactions between components of the system besides service mesh. Service mesh is just one, one of the examples. So for, for API evolution, for example, do you have any methodology that you suggest or maybe some tooling around it? Or you just go and say, like, make sure that they're versioned. Is there something structured when you talk about um, talk about the right API approach? Um, well, nothing new there. You know, first of all, uh, don't break APIs. <laughs> <laughs> Easier said than done. First rule: don't don't ever break APIs. <laughs> well, that's that's a very that's a very broad rule that probably there are good exceptions to it. Find me a good exception of when you should break an API. I would say major Unless, versions, you definitely should be allowed to break APIs. When oh, you yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, then the same thing as, you know, with the, with the, the evolution of, uh, of uh, structured databases, uh, only add fields and don't uh, remove fields. Sure. But this is this is how you go straight into this complexity hell when you have too much of everything just because you keep adding and never removed anything. How how this is good. So then, when you finally define to decide to break the API, remove all the redundant fields and make sure to communicate that to every senior that you have out there. So basically, you know. It all come. It all comes down in the end, you know, with all the all the rules regarding not breaking the API and how to to advance the API and how to add fields and never remove fields. That's all about you know uh, assuming what our customers do. If we really want to know what our customers do, we need to have consumer-driven contracts in place. What are those? This is, uh, well, the, the concept itself was uh, suggested by ThoughtWorks. I think it was Martin Fowler himself or, or uh, one of the folks uh, at ThoughtWorks. And there is tooling for that today on the market. There is a system called Pact. Hmm. Uh, that basically what it allows you to do is uh, whenever you build uh, and an API, right? You create a test for that. Uh, and whenever you call an API, you also create tests for that. And uh, you define, you, you export the definitions for those tests. So whenever I consume an API, I can export the definition of whatever my service is expecting from the API. It builds mocks, right? I, through the, in the test, I build mocks. And these mocks define the behavior that I expect from my provider. And then somewhere in my CI, if my tests have passed, I take the, the test definition and I hand it over to the provider. And the provider needs to make sure that these tests also run in their, in their CD pipeline. 
So in this way, the provider is responsible for the API not breaking. Okay, That's but cool. this goes into adding a lot of complexity. And, and I understand that it makes sense when you deal with external consumers that obviously have expectations of you providing a consistent quality updates goes into uh, obviously continuous updates pattern um, when we can trust each other because I, exp I need you to take my updates blindly and you need me when you do it not to break things um, in a way. But um, microservices, I would say, is about having uh, um, every microservice exposing API and then other microservices consuming the, their APIs. And if I start doing all that around each and every microservice, that's tons of overhead. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's fine to add additional complexity if it gets you an equal or greater amount of consistency and reliability. But that's just me. I, I will spend a ton of time and effort making sure that as much of something is automated as possible on the front end so that I don't have to deal with it later. But that's me. Yeah, I, I agree with Kit. Basically, what, what they say is you can't really manage complexity with simplicity. <laughs> so you have to add complexity in order to manage complexity. Uh, I, I think my question was in the matter of not if you have microservices, is it worth to do them well? Obviously, the answer is yes. The question is, doesn't it... That there are trade-offs for having microservices in the first place. And I would say contract-based APIs and all that actually adds a lot of weight to the counter-argument of maybe I don't need them at all. Uh, well, at a certain scale, you, you just must, you must have them because uh, a monolith is great until it becomes huge. Large. Yeah, right. Because at a certain point, it, it, there is this uh, uh, issue of gravity, right? So uh, only last week, somebody was telling me about how they're trying to uh, transfer their monolith to Kubernetes, right? Without breaking it down into microservices. So they tried to build a Docker image but uh, they realized that actually right now their uh, system is packaged as a, a virtual machine image. And when they tried to build that into a Docker image, uh, they received a Docker image that weighs uh, 125 gigabytes. Holy crap, dude. <laughs> because their system requires something like 500 RPMs to be installed over uh, vanilla center. Oh, <laughs> that's so, a yikes. They're going to have, there's, there's no pain-free way to unravel that, I think. I think that's going to be a bear no matter what they do. But that, that's a working monolith system, right? They're, they have customers, they have paying customers, th their system works. The only problem with it is it's very, very heavy, so it's hard to deliver, right? Yeah. We all know this, that if you have a system that takes hours to build, that takes uh, hours to package, that takes uh, even, you know, tens of minutes to, to get started, 
there's there's a lot of uh, time, that time that you spend sp uh, just staring at your screen. Yeah, that's a that's a huge waste of uh, of time, energy, money, manpower. Right. Just that, that, that's when uh, bright engineers start living because they don't want to. Nobody wants to be responsible for babysitting that. That's not that's not being an engineer. That's babysitting. So that that's where the need for uh, microservices uh, arises. So uh, there is you want to make engineers' lives better. What you are saying is that sometimes there is no escape from from the complexity, and and you just have to have to accept it and and try to deal with it with with the tools that we have. Exactly. Pretending that there is no complexity is the worst thing that could happen. Actually, there is a very nice documentary that I just watched. It's it's not a new one. It's uh, from 2016 by uh, Adam Curtis. is uh, one of my favorite documentary uh, directors uh, making documentaries on BBC. So his last one is called Hypernormalization. And it talks about how the world is becoming ever more complex and how politicians uh, mainly try to make us believe that it's simple and that they're in control and how that uh, just uh, just ne never goes right, right? And we're actually witnessing this right now we're in the midst of something that nobody <laughs> knows how to control. Interesting. So, and that, that brings me back to what we started with, and that's your consultancy gig and, and, and your messaging that you need to uh, convey to those who hire you. Uh, and in the end of the day, I think that makes that the message that you come with is not, is not comforting, right? So basically you, you, you cannot say, People, I've got that. I have a silver bullet. I'm going to fix everything for you. That would be just unresponsible and wrong. Instead, you have to admit everything is hard. Everything is horrible. Everything is complicated. I don't have all the answers. And, and then what? But uh, I can help you. Well, first of all, I can help you reduce the pain. Okay, and then uh, I will uh, be with you on that journey. You know, I will accompany you on that journey and uh, I will be there to hold your hand and uh, together we can make it better. That's basically, <laughs> basically, you know, the, the messaging. And Everything the sucks, but you're not alone. Excuse me? Everything sucks, but you're not alone. Right. Right. And uh, actually, you know, uh, one of the things that I, as a consultant, I do a lot is studying the industry and uh, the right examples of uh, these processes making things better. The right examples of these transformations actually bringing gains, profits, uh, happiness, uh, success, whatever. We don't know if it's uh, permanent, but uh, even on a temporary basis, if uh, something works better today than it worked uh, yesterday, then that's a proof that there are techniques that can be used.
Okay. So with that kind of optimistic message, it will be a good, good time for us to wrap up. A um, couple of more questions. What's the story with the fingers? Uh, well, that's, that's kind of stupid, but uh, never try to pull a blanket of a 16-year-old teenager. What? What? <laughs> Context? Well, uh, I tried Raise your to hand, Anton, so we will uh, know I the context. I wake my son up, and I pulled uh, the blanket off him, and, uh, well, he was uh, evidently in a bad mood, and he pulled the uh, blanket back, and he's, he's, he's strong. He's already that <laughs> taller than me. And, uh, well, probably, I don't know, somehow I held on to that blanket too hard, even though you know that's not my life philosophy. My life philosophy is to let go, not not to hold on. But uh, anyway, somehow my fingers got uh, caught in that blanket, <laughs> and I broke my fingers. Okay, um, so we'll get we'll, we'll that... the story that you tried to break the the silos down. Let's let's stick to that. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's uh, that, that. Basically, you know, comes to show how how unexpected some incidents are if we take this back to, to DevOps. Very true, very true. And um, so this is, one, this is one elephant in the room. The other one is um, all three of us uh, are, are speakers in a lot of conferences that are not happening today, uh, not happening now. And uh, I want to assure you as speakers and our audience's potential a potential audience of the conferences that uh, we try to come up with interesting solutions, both for Swamp Up, the Jeffrog user conference, and uh, stay tuned for announcements soon, and also for for DevOps, the um, largest DevOps conference in, in in Russia that was supposed to happen in Moscow um, later in um, April and and obviously won't happen physically, but there are announcements there as well. So if you are here for you know to 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 know what's going on with that, he, stay tuned for for all of that. We will have some news uh, on on both fronts. Um, Anton, thank you very much for doing this inaugural uh, podcast episode with us. Um, I think that was great. It was a lot of DevOps, a lot of technology, everything that we love. Uh, later today, we'll have another episode with Rosemary Wang, who is uh, a developer advocate with uh, HashiConf, so uh, HashiCorp. So we'll hear about uh, some some of the cool stuff that they are doing, and uh, they're much more planning. So stay tuned. Um, all the news are in uh, DevOps Speakeasy Twitter um, and also Jeffrey Twitter. And we will uh, podcast it uh, live on uh, Jeffrog uh, uh, YouTube channel and uh, also uh, uh, we'll upload it to one of the podcasting platforms. So you will have it in your favorite podcast player um, consume it from there. Uh, with that, again, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, uh, Kat, for co-hosting this with me. Thank you very much, Anton, for being here with us. Uh, my name is Baruch. Follow us on Twitter. Show notes are coming. All the good stuff. Thank you and bye-bye. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. you. <laughs> okay. Are we still recording? Yes.